Hello and welcome to Malo Revealed, episode 8 of Hidden in Plain Sight, the HIPS podcast exploring the mysterious disappearance of Christopher Marlow, famed Elizabethan playwright, poet, and agent in Queen Elizabeth's secret network of spies. I'm Julian Ng, the writer and composer of Kit, the musical, and joining me to investigate this remarkable tale and the evidence supporting the claim that Marlowe survived is Peter Hodges, playwright, director, and author of Marlowe's Complaint, the new book exploring this issue. Welcome back, Peter. Thank you, Julian. It's a pleasure to be here with you again. Peter, we've reached the final episode in our first Hidden in Plain Sight series. I must say, to my mind, this has been a thoroughly remarkable investigation of this long-standing mystery. In our past three episodes, we have been making a detailed examination of what you call Marlowe's Dangerous Letter, which is in fact sonnets 78 to 92 of what was published in 1609 and is still known today as Shakespeare's Sonnets. In episode 5, you explained why the publication of Hero and Leander would appear dangerous to Marlowe if he was still alive. In episode 6, you presented convincing evidence that George Chapman was indeed the man being accused of trying to replace Marlowe. And in episode 7, you presented equally convincing evidence that Hero and Leander was the poem he was accused of pirating. All of this sounds pretty incredible, but you have given us a lot of very convincing evidence supporting every part of it. Now, however, you have the very daunting task of presenting evidence that will prove Marlowe actually wrote that latter. And I'm thinking that this may be the test that finally stumps you. <laughs> what do you say? Can, can you prove that Marlowe wrote that letter? I think I can. In fact, I think I have five more specific pieces of evidence that will confirm it. I'm sorry, five? Did you say five more? Five. And this is on top of the five you gave us for Chapman and the six you gave us for Hero and Leander. Oh, well, well then, that's a challenge I'm going to hold you to. <laughs> well, let's look at the evidence. As you said, for five years, from 1593 to 1598, Christopher Marlowe has been rumored to be dead, stabbed in a brawl in a riverside tavern in Deptford. Then, in 1598, Francis Mears, an Anglican prelate with an M.A. from Oxford, published a commonplace book titled Pilatus Tamia which included the first public report of Marlowe's supposed murder. And at the same time, Edmund Blunt published the first version of Marlowe's Hero and Leander, the one in, that included Marlowe's original text with no additions. Blunt dedicated the poem to Sir Francis Walsingham, and in the dedication, he declared that Marlowe was dead. He says that about a dozen times in two paragraphs. The next thing you know, 
George Chapman's version of Hero and Leander, including his long-winded editions, appears, and in his dedication to Lady Audrey Walsingham, he also declares that Christopher Marlowe is dead. So the idea that Marlowe was dead was very much in the public mind in 1598. Yes, and that is what people have believed ever since. It's taught in school. It's the accepted version of events, and even when the coroner's report was discovered three centuries later, it merely confirmed all of that. Yes, but that's looking backward. We have to stay in the moment, in 1598, when all of this was happening, because the coroner's report, remember, it was sealed. No one had seen it in 1598 except maybe the Queen's Privy Council. It wasn't sitting on the bookshelves for sale in St. Paul's churchyard next to Pilatus Tamia and the two versions of Hero and Leander. But you're right. The coroner's report also stated that Marlowe was dead. The next thing you know, we get this letter with all of its allusions to George Chapman and to Hero and Leander, claiming that Chapman appropriated Marlowe's poem. Now, if the question is who wrote this letter, then I suggest that we look to see if the author says anything about himself. And he does. He says, was it his spirit by spirits taught to write above a mortal pitch that struck me dead? And earlier in the letter, he says that he is forced to remain silent even in the face of Chapman's insults. And he gives a reason. The silence for my sin did you impute, which shall be most my glory being dumb. For I impair not beauty being mute when others would give life and bring a tomb. So he's saying that he's forced to be silent because he's supposed to be dead. He's obviously not dead, but that's the deal. He even says that the person he's writing to forced this on him. Now, remember that Sir Thomas was Marlowe's patron. Marlowe stayed in his estate at Scadbury right before he was reported stabbed. And Sir Thomas and Lady Audrey are mentioned again and again in Chapman's dedication to his version of Hero and Leander, which is referenced repeatedly in The Dangerous Letter. This is all a very tight circle of associations, and Chapman has blundered into it, apparently, because Sir Thomas invited him in. You could say someone else who knew all of these people wrote this letter, but if they did, they would be putting themselves in a lot of danger for no good reason. For starters, Archbishop Whitgriff might want to put him on or her on the rack just to find out what he or she knew. Meanwhile, this set of references to the author being dead when he obviously is not, that's consistent with the likelihood of Marlowe's exile. That is very compelling, Peter. But really, your argument hinges on the meaning of the word dead, because dead could also just mean silent. It's a poetic letter, isn't it? Words can have more than one meaning, and don't you need something more if you want to convince someone that Marlowe really wrote this letter? Well, I think there is more. 
There's even an earlier line that addresses the relationship between the author and the benefactor. He says, Whilst I alone did call upon thy aid, my verse alone had all thy gentle grace. Now here, the writer is telling us that he was once the only poet supported by this patron. Before Chapman appeared, Marlowe was the only poet supported by Walsingham. We have Edmund Blunt telling us that Walsingham supported Marlowe, and the historical record does not have him patronizing any other poet before Chapman appears in 1598. And we've already identified Chapman and Hero and Leander as the poet and poem being written about, so this is a very significant bit of information. But even without the framing of Chapman and Hero and Leander, you'll have a difficult time finding a poet who claims to have a one-to-one -one relationship with his patron who also claims to be dead. You know, if you think of this as a series of hurdles, then only the person who overcomes the first hurdle is allowed to approach the second. And then only the person who overcomes both the first and the second is allowed to attempt the third. So only someone who knows Chapman and who knows the backstory of Hero and Leander as well as Marlowe would, that person now has to claim he is both dead or silenced and was once the only poet patronized by the same person who now patronizes Chapman. The list of those people is very short, on top of which we have another confirmation of the same relationship stated in a different way. He says, there lives more life in one of your fair eyes than both your poets can in praise devise. So now the writer is saying there are only two poets. We know one of them is Chapman. How can the other be anyone other than Marlowe when Marlowe is the other poet in the Hero and Leander mashup? You know what? I agree that that is very strong evidence, Peter. But I think you need to eliminate the possibility that someone might have been imitating Marlowe. Someone <laughs> like Thomas Nash, for instance. Hey, you know, someone who knew him very well and, and knew how to write like him. I mean, we know that Nash published Marlowe's Dido, Queen of Carthage in 1598 and included himself as co-author on the title page. He was co-author of The Isle of Dogs with Ben Johnson, a play that was suppressed, which landed Johnson in jail and forced Nash himself to flee London in 1598. A lot of scholars think that the play might have had something to do with the Marlowe affair because the actual Isle of Dogs is directly across the Thames from Deptford. Nash also wrote The Unfortunate Traveller in 1593 about a character who is forced to escape London and travels to Italy. And many of those same scholars think that was a tribute to Marlowe as well. Well, yes, but why would he do this? Why would Nash write all of these unpublished poems? <laughs> who knows? Nash was notoriously obscure. Maybe he was just doing it for himself. And then later on, the poems got published just to make someone some money. Oh, who's, who's speculating now? 
Uh, but I'm allowed to speculate because I'm not trying to prove anything. Yeah, well, you know, it's not at all clear what Nash contributed to Dido. We have many examples of Nash's solo work, including a dozen essay pamphlets, his whole dispute with Gabriel Harvey, stuff he wrote in response to the Marprelet writers and a play he wrote by himself, Summer's Last Will. And none of it is remotely like the letter or anything else written by Marlowe. Dido, he put his name on Dido. Uh, I may be allowed to speculate so that he could get paid for it. Regardless, I don't think you can make a case for Nash as the author of any of the sonnets. There were only so many poets at the time who had any ability to do any of these things. And even if you want to say William Shakespeare was one of them, he never had anything to do with George Chapman, Thomas Walsingham, or Hero and Leander. On top of which, there is another piece of evidence in favor of Marlowe something that would be very unlikely for anyone else to know about. It's something that links the letter to Marlowe's Cambridge portrait. Oh, do you mean the portrait we use on our website? No, that one is later, 1588 or so. No, this one was painted in 1585. It's dated, and it was lost for centuries. It was rediscovered in a trash bin at Cambridge in 1953, and it's been authenticated. But no one had ever even heard of it before that. There's no mention in, of it in contemporaneous correspondence. This portrait includes a very unique motto. It's in Latin. It says, pardon my Latin, quod me nutrit, me destruit, which in English means that which nourishes me destroys me. Well, that's a very unusual phrase. It's ominous and even a little fatalistic. I suppose it's something a college graduate would think was mysterious. But it turns out that Marlowe makes two references to this phrase in his 1598 letter. Now, I didn't notice this at first, but when we started this podcast, I took another look at the letter, and, and sure enough, Marlowe puts two phrases in that say pretty much the same thing. First, he says, comparing his fate to his rival Chapman, if he thrive and I be cast away, the worst was this, my love was my decay. And right after that, he says, my ripe thoughts in my brain in hearse, making their tomb the womb wherein they grew. So this is the way this guy's mind worked. The inversion of an idea, the sudden reversal. It's practically his signature. It's on his Cambridge portrait, and now it's here, twice, in this very personal, very dangerous letter. Who else would know about that? Who else would dare to mimic it? Because if anyone else could figure out what you were talking about, say, for instance, the Earl of Essex, I promise I've got a torture chamber all set up just for you. That's incredible. So you're saying that in 1598, Marlowe quoted the motto from his Cambridge portrait. 
And do you know if anybody else ever saw that portrait? <laughs> you mean Thomas Nash? <laughs> well. <laughs> no, he could have because he did go to Cambridge. But then you would still have to explain why he wrote another sonnet where that same motto appears, totally outside of the dangerous letter. Sonnet 73, lines 9 to 12, they read, In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. Now that last line is almost word for word from the portrait, but it's in an altogether separate message. I don't think even Thomas Nash could have done that. No, you're right. I think not. It probably isn't Nash, nor any of the other people we've talked about. But whoever it is, your claim that it's Marlowe's still seems to come up just a bit short, don't you think? Huh. Well, you've given me a lot to think about, but honestly, I'm, I'm still not quite convinced. You promised me five pieces of evidence. So far, you've given me four. Well, I've got one more clue for you. And in this one, he tells us who he is and why he wrote Hero and Leander. Now, remember that Chapman is our rival poet and Hero and Leander is the poem in the middle of the rivalry. Chapman claimed that he completed Marlowe's poem so that neither's draft be consecrate to sleep, which is to say that they would not be forgotten. In Sonnet 81, which is in the middle of all of this, the author tells his patron, your name from hence immortal life shall have, though I once gone to all the world must die. Now there's that reference to death again. That's a reference that we know fits Marlowe's situation. Regardless, he's promising immortality to his patron. And in order to keep this promise, he adds in the same sonnet, your monument shall be my gentle verse, which eyes not yet created shall or read. These lines echo Chapman's claim of permanence, a claim which Chapman dedicated to Audrey Walsingham. With those lines, Marlowe is telling Audrey, it's not Chapman's additions that make your name immortal. It's my verse, my poem, my hero and Leander, the original that will be your monument. And who wrote that original? Christopher Marlowe. When the author of Sonnet 81 says, my poem will make you immortal, he's saying, I'm Christopher Marlowe, the author of Hero and Leander, the poem I wrote for you, Audrey Walsingham. Oh, well, hang on a minute. What do you say to those who claim that Sonnet 81 isn't even part of the rival poet sequence? Aren't there scholars who claim it's separate? Yeah, well, excuse me for saying this, but I think they do that because they don't understand it, so they try to omit it. But when you precede it with the fact that the rival is Chapman, and the dispute is about Hero and Leander, written by Marlowe and completed by Chapman, which Chapman dedicated to Audrey, promising that it would not be forgotten, and then you include all the other evidence pointing to Marlowe, 
Then, when Marlowe says his poem will make his patron immortal, this becomes part of the continuity because it's consistent with everything else. It fits, and it identifies Marlowe. Yeah, but, but isn't that a circular argument? Doesn't it rely on an assumption that it then purports to prove? No, not at all. By itself, the clue is probably indecipherable, I'll give you that. But when taken with the rest of the individual clues, it makes perfect sense. It's, it's not circular, it's linear. And it ties all the other clues together in a single wrapper. You can take this clue away, and you still have all the other evidence. The evidence for Chapman, the evidence for Hero and Leander, and all the other evidence for Marlowe, the claim that he was once his patron's only favorite, then that he is one of two, that he has been silenced, and that he repeatedly quotes Marlowe's motto from an obscure painting dated 13 years before he wrote any of this. You can take all of that and then combine it with what he says about himself in Sonnet 81, and you have Marlowe declaring himself by name. Now that's five identifiers for Marlowe. That matches the five identifiers for Chapman, and we have six identifiers for Hero and Leander, making 16 in all. I'd say that's a pretty healthy number. I can't dispute that. And you know what? It just occurred to me that 16 is one short of the 17 sonnets written for Southampton, the series that caused all of this trouble. Well, on the other hand, it's one more than the number of sonnets in the letter, not to mention you took away one of my proofs, so they're 17 <laughs> after all. Honestly, I don't know how much more evidence you could give us. But what I really like about this explanation is that it takes all the individual clues and turns them into a single theory with nothing left out. To me, it seems very complete. However, you and I know that there are still many doubters out there who will not be able to bring themselves to agree, even if they can't think of any reason to disagree. I wonder what our listeners will say. Yes, that will be interesting. <laughs> well, meanwhile, I think we've done a great job. We've reached the finish line for this series. So let's do a quick recap. First, we learned that Christopher Marlowe was not only a famous playwright, he was also an intelligence agent for Lord Burley, the Queen's chief advisor, then the Earl of Essex conspired to disgrace Marlowe in an attempt to undermine Lord Burley, his political rival. Marlowe's life was threatened because of the accusation of atheism, and to save him, Burley and Thomas Walsingham faked his murder and engineered his escape from London to the European continent, where he remained in exile for five years. That is, until George Chapman published his version of Marlowe's poem, Hero and Leander. Fearing that he was to be cast aside or sacrificed, Marlowe broke his long silence and wrote his dangerous letter. Now, with 16 pieces of evidence, you have shown that 1. George Chapman was Marlowe's rival poet. 2. Marlowe accused Chapman of hijacking Le Hero and Leander. And 3. 
that the latter, threatening to expose Sir Thomas, was written by Christopher Marlowe in 1598, thereby demonstrating that Marlowe was very much alive five years after his supposed death. We have now established this dangerous letter as sonnets 78 to 92 of the collection known today as Shakespeare's sonnets. Phew! It has literally been hidden in plain sight for over 400 years, and what a truly remarkable story it is. However, it leads me to another question. If Christopher Marlowe is indeed alive in 1598, what do we make of Shakespeare? Why was this dangerous letter published under his name? And why was it printed in 1609? What is this all about anyway? What was, was Shakespeare involved in some kind of cover-up? Oh, that's a lot of questions. I don't see how we can possibly answer them in the little time we have left. Quite right. How about a second series, Peter? I have a feeling we're going to need it. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> Let's do this again. I want to tell the story of Audrey Walsingham. Other than Marlowe himself, I think she's the most important person in this saga. Yes, you did say he wrote Hero and Leander for her, and I'm guessing there's a whole lot more to that story. A lot. Okay, well, that's a good cliffhanger, if any, so let's stop right there. Meanwhile, I'm going to get started on your book, Marlowe's Complaint. Well, thank you, Julian. This has been a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy the book. Mm -hmm.